Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dreadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is The White Witch of the River by J. E. Muddock Many, many years ago, long before Helensburgh on the River Clyde had grown into the important place that it is now, when in fact it was only a primitive fishing village whose inhabitants knew little of the world beyond their own doors, there dwelt there an honest fisher lad named Robert Rennie. He had been a fisher all his days, as his father and grandfather had before him, and no more fearless boatmen existed in that part of the country. He was an adventurous of mind, too, and explored the lonely Loch Long, Loch Goyle, the Garlock, and the Holy Loch, which, as all travelers by the Clyde know, run north from the river, with the exception of the Holy Loch, which trends west and back into the mountains. Wild and mysterious were those regions in those days, for the iron horse had not broken the solitudes of the mountain and the moorland, where the lordly eagle still held sway, and the hill fox reared her cubs in peace. In fact, so wondrous wild, the whole might seem the scenery of a fairy dream. And many, indeed, were the strange stories that there were told of beings, not of mortal mold, who roamed about in the mountain fastness. Robert, in his wanderings, had often seen some of these creatures, and at night, around the turf fire, when the wind whistled shrilly about the cottages with their thatched roofs, he was wont to tell eerie stories to his awe-struck companions, who listened with open eyes and gaping mouths until their hair rose on end and the blood curdled in their veins. The simple folk, in fact, used to say that there was something uncanny about Robert himself, and it was a common belief that he had made some unholy compact with evil spirits that haunted the local locks and the gloomy glens. One thing is certain. He would start off alone on the darkest night and with his boat penetrate up one or the other locks and would return when day broke with his boat laden with fish. Now, it is not certain that to do this he must have had a supernatural aid. At least, that is what the simple villagers thought and even said. Then again, he often journeyed to the wondrous wild Loch Long, and he would sometimes be absent two or three days together. When he was asked how he found shelter during his absence in such inhospitable place, he replied that he lived in the ruins of Carrick Castle. Well, indeed, might his listeners shudder when they heard this? For no man residing in the neighborhood would have had the hardihood to doubt that Carrick Castle was the haunt of ghosts and ghouls. Loch Long runs for nearly 18 miles, trending north and east, but halfway it is joined by Loch Goal, which trends to the west, and Carrick Castle frowns on the gloomy loch from a lofty crag. And many a stirring scene of bloodshed has it witnessed. 
Loch Goyle is merely a narrow arm of the sea, at its broadest point not exceeding a mile, while the rocky sides are rent with many a seam, and in places so steep as to be inaccessible, but the peaks that tower above reach at their highest point two thousand to two thousand five hundred feet. Midway up this rock-bound strip of water stands the castle, that in some far-off time must have been a place of immense strength, and was so, in fact, down to 1685, when a body of a wild hillman instigated by the personal enemies of the Marquis of Argyle, to whom the stronghold then belonged, swept down from the mountains, when the place was undefended, and with fire and rams turned it into a blackened ruin, so that it was said, when referring to the Argyles, their old castle Carrick is peeled to its walls, and fleshless things grin in its once lordly halls. Time dealt kindly with the ruin, clothing its blackened walls with ivy and lichen. But the raven and the night owl made it their abode, and strange spirits reveled there. Yet, to this place Robert Rennie was in the habit of going and passing two or three days at a time, and it was whispered that it was in this ghostly ruin he had made his fearsome compact, whereby he was enabled to fill his boat with fish when other fishers were afraid to put to sea. What the compact stipulated he should give in return for this privilege was not stated. Rennie had the reputation of being well off, and he was the sole support of his widowed mother and a crippled brother. He had built a neat cottage that stood facing the river and was the best cottage in all the village. He was a fine, stalwart young man, and not bad-looking, although he had such a peculiar expression about his steel-gray eyes that some folks shunned him as being possessed of the evil eye. Notwithstanding the reputation he had thus acquired, there were plenty of girls in the village who would have jumped at him had he but given them the slightest encouragement. But, strange to say, he seemed to shun all female society, though there were those in the village who were ready to affirm most solemnly that they had seen him occasionally in the gloaming seated in his boat, accompanied by a most beautiful woman dressed all in white, who was known as the White Witch of the River. She was a being of radiant beauty, with hair like a raven's plume, and a form of faultless mold, while her eyes shone like gleaming gold, and with a voice that was low and sweet. She could lure men to her feet, unless they turned their eyes to heaven and uttered a prayer. It was fatal to hear this siren singing, as she often did when the gloaming had enfolded the hills in purple shadows, or the pale moon had made a silvery track on the river. Often, at such a time, the marvelous creature was seen gliding down the river like a mist wreath from the hillside, but those who saw her would instantly avert their gaze and hurry away, lest, with her flute-like voice, she would lure them to their destruction. And yet, although it was known that the white witch of the river fascinated men to follow her in order to drown them in the blue depths of the lonely locks, there were those who asserted solemnly that they had seen her with Robert Rennie in his boat. 
No wonder, therefore, that he came to be shunned by many of the villagers as an uncanny person with an evil eye. In disposition, he was somewhat morose and seemed to prefer solitude. But with these exceptions, no one could say aught against him. He was kind to his mother and crippled brother, and they believed he was the cleverest youth for many miles around, and that some day he would be a great man. But if the old people and the men looked upon him with suspicion, many of the young women uttered a silent sigh as he passed them. <sighs> to all except one, however, he was utterly indifferent. This one did not live in Helensburgh. She was the daughter of a rich merchant in Greenock. Two or three nights a week, Robert would sail his boat across the river from Helensburgh to Greenock and secretly meet this young lady, so that it seemed as if she favored his suit. Her name was Florence, and she enjoyed the reputation of being the belle of Greenock. It is difficult to say when they first met or how their acquaintance grew. The fact remains she was, all unknown to her father and her brother, in the habit of meeting him and allowing him to talk love to her. Perhaps he had fascinated her with his evil eye, and she bore him no real love. At any rate, one night when he crossed the river and landed at the usual spot where he had been in the habit of finding her waiting for him, instead of Florence, there were two men. They at once announced themselves as the father and brother of Florence. They said she had confessed that she had been in the habit of granting him stolen interviews, thus disgracing her family. They had come now to caution him to return no more. Florence, they said, was not for the likes of him, and they had resolved that if he returned again, they would kill him. Drawing himself up proudly, he told them with scorn in his voice, and with the fire of indignation flashing from his eyes, that he should return again and again until he heard from the girl's own lips that she loved him not. This haughty and defiant answer aroused the father and son to fury and each being armed with a stout stick, they suddenly fell upon him and beat him until he fell senseless to the ground. Thinking he was dead, and being frightened now lest the crimes should be discovered, they lifted his body and carried it to the very edge of the water, so that when the tide rose and receded again, it would bear his corpse out to sea. They next set his boat adrift, knowing that if it was found as it was almost sure to be, it would create an impression he had fallen out and been drowned. This done, they went away, believing they had rid themselves forever of the troublesome lover. A few minutes later, the moon came from behind a dense mass of black cloud and lighted the water up with the sheen of silver. And presently, what seemed like a wreath mist, but having a vague resemblance to a woman, floated gracefully along the silvery path of light, and as it came nearer the shore, it developed into the perfect shape and form of the white witch of the river. Truly, she was a being of the most dazzling beauty, a beauty that was unearthly. Her eyes gleamed like stars on a frosty night, her face, 
faultless in all its features, was white and cold like the face of a marble statue, and the deathly whiteness of the face was enhanced by her blue-black hair that hung like a great veil down her back to her feet. A robe of spotless white that seemed to be woven from gossamer or mist clung to her rounded limbs in the most graceful folds, while round her waist was a girdle of jewels that broke into thousands of points of dazzling fire as the moonlit caught it. With a wave of her white arm, she arrested the drifting boat, and then with another wave, drew it towards the shore. And when its keel grated on the shingle, she slightly stooped and raised the insensible Robert as if he had only been a feather. Gently she placed him in his boat, and then, by some invisible power, the sail was raised. This was done. The white witch faded away, but a strange cloud of rosy, luminous mist entirely enveloped the boat, which sped along before a strong wind, though the cloud of mist went with it. On went the boat with extraordinary speed down the river, first of all until it reached the mouth of the holy lock. Then the same invisible power that guided it so far turned its prow almost due north, and with the luminous cloud still enveloping it, it sped up Loch Long to where Loch Goyle joins it and run down toward the west. Up Loch Goyle went the boat until it stranded at the head of the lock. Then... The luminous cloud faded away. By and by the mountains began to stand out clear and distinct in the pearly light of the coming dawn. And gradually the purple lay on the mountains and water warmed gold. Until at last the weird landscape was ablaze with the brilliant fire of the rising sun, whose rays seemed to revive Robert Rennie, so that he sat up in his boat and gazed wonderingly around him. For some little time he appeared to be dazed, and he passed his hand repeatedly over his eyes as if trying to clear his mental vision. Was it a dream? he muttered, as he began to recall the events of the preceding night. No, it could not be a dream, for he had ugly wounds in his temple where he had been struck, and almost every bone in his body ached. But how was it he'd got to where he then found himself? It was a long way from Greenock, and he had not the slightest recollection of anything after Florence's father and brother attacked him. All after that was shrouded in the deepest mystery to him. But when he remembered how shamefully he had been treated, he became furious, and stepping on shore, he wandered like one distraught into the gloomy glen that begins at the head of Loch Goyle and runs west to Loch Fyne. Down this strange and desolate glen runs the Styx. In the wild, rugged mountains, bleak and barren, rose so high on either side as to involve the glen in almost constant gloom, while the only sound that breaks the silence is the hoarse cry of the ravens. It seemed to be fitting place for Robert to give vent to his wrath, and while the mists, flying in rainy vapors, call out shapes and phantoms from the crags and solid earth, to utter an oath that he would yet possess Florence and be revenged for the outrage upon him. 
for three days. He remained in this weird solitude, not wishing to return to his people, showing traces of the outrage he had been subjected to. He lived as best he could on the herbs and berries, and at night he crept for shelter under some jutting rocks. During the dark hours, too, he heard strange sounds and witnessed strange sights, for the glen was the home of fleshless things. Blue lights flitted about, and every now and again, out of the blackness, were evoked nebulous forms that bore some resemblance to human beings. These forms seemed to be indulging in fantastic dances, forming chains, crossing and recrossing each other's paths, bowing and receding, and then suddenly vanishing into the darkness from whence they had come. And there were sighings and moanings and eldritch screams that woke the echoes with startling sharpness. All night long these uncanny sights and sounds went on, but the fleshless things slunk away when the morning light first beamed, and the only sounds heard then were the hoarse murmuring of the sticks and the raven's dismal croaking. At last Robert Rennie had so far recovered that he left this haunted spot and, sailing down the lock, returned to his people. Many were the questions asked of him, and great was the wonderment expressed at his changed appearance, for his face looked careworn and haggard, and he had become more grave and morose. To the questions, he made no answer. To the wonderment, he was stolidly indifferent. For weeks he brooded over his wrongs, while the sullen gloom that seemed to have settled on his face repelled him. He was shunned with fear. Scarcely a night passed now, no matter what the weather was, but he went out in his boat, and his neighbors whispered to one another, and shuddered while they avowed that the white witch of the river was frequently sitting beside him as he sat at the tiller. Whatever the mystery was, Robert kept it to himself. The seal of silence was on his lips. But that he still thought of Florence was proved one day, as an old woman from the village was crossing to Greenock to transact some business. He took her aside, and putting a piece of gold in her hand, bade her deliver secretly a message to the girl. The message was in the form of a prayer and a threat. He prayed her to meet him at the old trysting place for the last time, in order that he might bid her farewell forever and she was to be informed that if she failed to come to a dreadful calamity would befall her and all her people. Faithful to trust, the old woman delivered the message, and Florence was definitely influenced by it, for after deep reflection she bade the messenger say she would keep the tryst. Two nights later Robert crossed the river to Greenock. It was a strange night, weird and gloomy. Great jagged black clouds filled the sky, and between the rents of the moonlight sometimes streamed, calling into being gigantic and fantastic shadows that flitted over the river and the landscape. The wind blew coldly in from the sea, and it moaned like a thing in pain. The month was October. The sear leaves were dropping from the trees, and the trees themselves shivered and sobbed in the pitiless gale. 
A quarter of an hour after Robert had sprung on shore, Florence appeared. She was enveloped in a large cloak and seemed to be excited and flurried. What do you wish to ask me? She asked in a voice so stern and so unlike the loving tones that he was in the habit of hearing that he started back and exclaimed, Surely this is not my Florence. No, not yours, though I once thought I was, she answered with a sigh. But I have seen my error. You fascinated me. I mistook my feelings for love. I must have been mad, but I'm no longer mad. We part and part forever. But I come in deference to your wishes and for the sake of what we have been to each other to say farewell. My coming here is not unattended with risk, for I shudder to think what the consequences may be if my father and brother discover my absence. So what you have to say you must say quickly and let me go. He listened to her in gloomy silence. When she finished speaking, he asked her in a voice that seemed hollow and broken. Is your love for me quite dead? I have never loved you, she answered. I thought at the time it was love, but I know now I was mistaken. You have been false to me then. He cried with a passionate earnest. You have lured me into belief that you love me, only to fling me off with heartless cruelty. But it shall not be. We will not part. You shall be mine, even though we are wedded in death. With a shudder of fear, she shrank from him, and at that moment sounds of hurrying and approaching footsteps were heard. Some instinct perhaps told her that her father and brother were coming to seek her. She turned as if she intended to run forward and meet them, but at the same instant Robert Rennie caught her in his powerful arms, and she struggled to free herself. She uttered a shrill and piercing scream that went echoing through the hills until it died down on the night wind with a melancholy wail. He carried her over the shingle to his boat, placed her in it, and pushing off, sprang in himself and hoisted the sail just as the father and brother appeared in sight. Florence made a frantic appeal to them to rescue her, and almost beside themselves they rushed along the shoreline until they saw a fisherman's boat moored at its stake. Regardless of cold and wet, they swam out to it, and getting in, hoisted the sail and started in pursuit. But Rennie's boat had got a long start, and now that strange, luminous cloud seemed to envelop it again. The moonlight fell in broken bars across the dark water that was fretted into foaming wavelets by the salt sea wind. Fear had overcome Florence, and she had fallen in a faint at the bottom of the boat, grim and silent, with face white as the moonbeam rays, Robert Rennie sat in the stern sheets, holding the tiller and looking always ahead, never back. On went the pursued and the pursuer, the latter gaining slowly but surely, for the two men propelled with oars as well as the sail. The wind increased as they neared the mouth of the lock, and the boat sped at a fearful speed until they entered Lock Long. The pursuing boat was within a few yards of the other, Florence still lay insensible, and Robert, with scarcely a sign of life, still sat grasping the tiller. 
Then, from out of the luminous cloud, two long arms seemed to stretch, and lifting the inanimate form of Florence, they raised her up and let her fall into the sea in front of the advancing boat. A cry of horror burst from the lips of the father and son, and the hills seemed to echo and re-echo a wild and mocking peal of laughter. The two men stopped their boats, and seizing the clothes of the poor girl as they were expanded on the dark waters, they dragged her in. But she was cold and white as veined marble, and never would she be otherwise, for she was stone dead. Robert Rennie, who had never so much as looked around, still sat in the stern, and his boat tore up the lock. But he was not alone. Another form sat beside him, a form of exquisite and unearthly beauty. It was the form of the white witch of the river. Her arm was around his waist, her head was pillowed on his shoulder, and her night-black hair fell over him like a funeral pall. As the broken-hearted father and son bore back their dear dead burden, the boat containing Rennie and his ghostly companion sped away up the lock until it was lost to sight. Then the gathering clouds in the sky grew denser until the moonlight was blotted out. A sobbing rain fell, and the wind shrieked from the sea and lashed the water into hissing foam, like the wind of death. When the morning broke, the coast people declared that they had not experienced such a wild night for many, many a day. For many a long month, no tale or tidings of Robert Rennie were ever heard. But when the winter snows were melting before the genial breath of spring, a shepherd, searching for some strayed sheep in the gloomy recesses of the glen, found the skeleton of a man, and he recognized by the clothing that the dead man was Robert Rennie. And this corroborated when a little later he found Robert Rennie's boat crushed and broken on the Loch shore, where it had been flung on that wild, weird night. The mystery surrounding the strange man's death was never cleared up, but even at the present day old wives sitting over their winter fires will tell you that he was lured to his destruction by the white witch of the river. The End Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess. Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, visit my Patreon where we have lots of tears to choose from and each with their own special treats. Also, rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.